This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 46, recorded on October 15th, 2021. Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast about all things science. I am Dr. Abi Abdallah. I am here with Dr. Fawner and Dr. Keller. How are we doing? Good. Very good. 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 Dr. Fawner and I uh, recently attended a uh, a live football game. We did. Oh, yeah. I heard about this. You guys went down to the uh, Steelers game, right? Yes. And they won because we were there. Who were they playing? Denver. Yeah. Denver. Um, um, what's what's tra- the traffic was it's terrible. Well, oh, usually getting in was terrible. Yes. Forgot how bad traffic would get around there, but it was particularly bad because they had almost every road and Avenue to the garage <sighs> blocked off except and for the, one. And, and they're already one, one way anyway. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. yeah. It, it was, was a good hey, time. I'm glad, good time I'm glad was your that. team won. Was Fawner uh, all decked out in his uh, uh, Steelers jerseys and everything? Uh, not not as much as you would think, but he was crazy. No, there was no. He warned me. Were, he warned me about oh, he, sports. He, he said, yeah, "I'm not the he, father he, you know." When he goes to a Steelers game, he he can get he can get rowdy. Very. I had to be. It, that was me at about seventy percent too, because I had to. <laughs> he was keep toning it, it down. Well, I had to keep it together a little bit because we had a wedding to go to immediately after, and I told Kayla, "Okay, I'll have what." a few drinks and then I'm going to be good so that she could then have fun at the wedding and I could be the DD driving home later that evening. So it all worked out, but Keller could have been a lot worse. It could have been. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you guys had fun. I'm glad you guys had fun. All right. So what are we talking about today? We have a uh, fantastic birthday for you. We've got some COVID updates. We've got it, a, Really cool uh, scientific study. We have a fantastic background that Keller will tell us about. And it is Nobel Prize season. So for the next couple episodes, we're going to talk about the science behind the prize. So today we're going to talk about the Nobel Prize in medicine and physiology. For the next couple episodes, we'll do chemistry, physics, and we'll wrap up the year as usual with our ignoble awards uh that's a <laughs> those are so much fun to, i know i love i love that episode every did, every so did we towards talk the end of the poop? year was there a poop knife last year there was, a poop, that knife. I just, there was a, a poop knife <laughs> yes yes that's what but, i remember and uh <laughs> this episode uh, will wrap up with another one of our game segments Very so good. let's do it we've got uh a fun birthday today peter doherty born on october 15th 1940 in brisbane australia as far as I know, still alive and kicking. Uh, so he's an Australian immunologist and pathologist who shared a Nobel Prize in 1996 with Rolf Nagel, a Swiss-born scientist. And uh, their project that they won a Nobel Prize for is about T-cells. Basically, uh, using mice, they both proved in 1973 how the immune response recognizes and kills viral infected cells. 
And it turns out that the cell they use for that is your T cell, your cytotoxic T cell. So they pretty much figured out how T cells work for virus infections. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was massive, revolutionized immunology, uh, revolutionized our understanding of how we combat viral infected cells and pathogens, but also turns out these cells have a huge role in uh, cancer treatments, inflammatory diseases, uh, other infections, vaccines. Uh, vaccines. So, big, big um, vaccines. yeah, this this wasn't just a discovery about how we kill virus infected cells. It was it was massive for a lot of other things, yeah. and I think a a, a well well earned Nobel Prize there. Um, oh yeah, oh yes. All right, that's our birthday for uh for today and 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 if just in case he's listening peter happy birthday yeah, <laughs> that's happy right birthday. I, mean, I think every single other scientist we've ever done has been dead is no longer alive <laughs> that's right so, peter, this is the, i think this might be the first you're right this might be the first one we do who's still alive so peter if you are listening happy birthday and if you want to come on the show we'll be happy to talk to you by all means sure. i would love that absolutely all right. Do we have any clarifications? Nope. No. Okay. Keller, you have a petri dish behind have an you. An auger with... plate. This, so this is an auger plate, right? Right here. Uh-huh. And it's the color that's really important. So would anybody Looks like a to take bit a guess? Beige, beige to uh, uh, yeah, it's... greenish. Maybe a greenish hue. Definitely uh, like a dark greenish, dull greenish color. Okay. So what what is that? Tell us about it. So what we're looking at is uh, a culture plate of Pseudomonas. Pseudomonas is a a ubiquitous bacteria, meaning it's it's everywhere. You'll find it in the soil, in the water, everywhere. And most most of us come into contact with it every day. The problem is uh, in immunocompromised people, it poses a serious risk, uh, specifically uh, cystic fibrosis patients uh, can get a lung infection and uh, burn patients can get a wound infection. So that and uh, it can also cause hot tub folliculitis in, in anybody who frequents a hot tub that has pseudomonas in it so yeah, we'll leave it with yeah. that one there i uh, hot tub stay, i avoid those like the plague if i if i can so just just to finish up the the reason it's green is pseudomonas has uh some some different pigments that it produces when it grows in culture and it can be anywhere from a, a blue green all the way to what you see here which is a dull a dull green color we, we have different strains that we work with in our lab uh, and I think you've seen them, the right? Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Some are sure. dark forest yeah. green yeah. to this. So it's it's very interesting. Uh, Pseudomonas is uh, one of the few bacteria that, that, that has a particular color when you culture it. Well, thank you for Absolutely. That. And let's see a quick coronavirus update on the numbers. Fawner, please tell us where are we with vaccination and cases? Uh, cases worldwide, 240.7 million. Worldwide deaths at about 4.9 million. Uh, U.S. cases, 45.6 million. U.S. deaths, 743,000. Uh, in terms of the U.S. vaccination effort as of today, 
partially vaccinated at about 9%, fully vaccinated at 56%, and total, including the partial, is at 65%. And those uh, numbers have uh, kind of stayed there for a while now, right? Yeah, they're not going to move much. We haven't no, budged them, but yeah. a few percentage points here and there. I mean, look, yeah. we tried money, we tried free beer. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know what else will work. Free beer I, didn't I, work. I, think I don't we know may, what else will work. I think we may be plateauing there, but we'll see. We've We've said things about coronavirus in the past on on here that turned out to be, you know, later wrong because the data changed or, you know, a Delta variant came along. I remember when one sure. time we said, oh, sure. hey, you know, this this thing is behind us and then it wasn't. But let's let's see. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no worries. Uh, vaccination effort globally, uh, about 6.61 billion doses have been administered. Uh, 47.3% of the world's population has gotten at least one dose and 2.7% of people in low income countries have received at least one dose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any, uh, Keller, any, any quick, uh, COVID exciting news? Well, uh, right. I think, I think while we were getting ready for this podcast and I just right off, uh, right off the presses, the FDA advisory panel has approved the J&J booster uh, uh, two months after the, the first shot. So yeah. the booster has been approved. So I guess we'll all be getting another shot probably pretty soon. <laughs> I'm still waiting um, on Moderna. I'm a Moderna vaccine. I, I know. that's. Uh, I think we had Pfizer, didn't we, Fawner? Uh Yeah, I think Pfizer. I'm I think pretty Pfizer. sure. I have my vaccination card somewhere. <laughs> You guys, if you're um, if you're Pfizer as as professors and you know you you are in that teacher category, you may be if it's six months or more, you may be eligible for that Pfizer booster. Something to look into, but yeah, yeah mm, for sure, yeah, we can move on. I'm excited. We'll get an email. Don't worry. So uh, the new Merck pill is out, right? It's a it's a drug. It's um, just a pill, right? and it's a, a, an actual treatment. Molnu Previr, I think is is how you say that one. Um, it is a, uh, I believe a a protease inhibitor, if I'm right, of some sort. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah that that. So a lot of new antivirals are, that come out are specific protease inhibitors. So I think this one fits that bill too. But it has cut the risk of hospitalization and death by fifty percent in studies. Um, it's under FDA review, so we have that. Um, you know, there are other other treatment modalities that are out there approved and uh, unapproved, but yeah, uh, you know, between the vaccine monoclonal antibody treatments and this new drug and any other drugs coming on the market, I think honestly, any, any death at this point from COVID is probably preventable. No, I I would say, unless you have a severely immunocompromised person, let's say most deaths are preventable. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. How about that new study about doses? Uh, yeah, when exposed to SARS-CoV-2, you know, why does one person have an asymptomatic infection and one would end up in the ICU on a ventilator? And a recent study in, in the Journal of Nature came out that shows that, uh, that the dose matters. So they gave uh, monkeys uh, a dose of the virus, um, different doses that, that they inhaled, and that was a key factor 
that determine the severity of the disease. So more virus equals more disease, which makes sense. It's obvious, right? right? But it's obvious, but you need but, to kind of prove that. You know, it, well, you know, it's obvious, but not things like you can't believe things like um, say cholera. It, you know, that's a you know a GI bug. I think we're all familiar with, at least with the term cholera, and and the disease is like a nasty diarrhea. But you don't you don't need a lot of bugs to start a whole right. infection, right? Right. Malaria is another one. You need ten. They they did this these experiments like seven to ten uh, infectious organisms to start the whole thing. That's not a lot. So yeah. Yeah. you know, I think this needed to be shown. Most infections are dose dependent, but yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, now we know for sure. And you know, uh, for 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 this specific you know infection, since it's new, the virus is new. You know, the data is novel. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. True. here we go. All right, cool. Let's uh, cool. let's move. Thanks for that. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to this episode scientific study. This one is a cool one. So this one came out of the journal Cell Host and Microbe. Actually, shout out to Dr. Uh, Dave Duriancic, uh, uh, biochemist uh, genetics uh, professor at LECOM, brought, brought this one to my attention. Uh, title is uh, Symbiont Regulated Serotonin Biosynthesis Modulates Tick Feeding Activity. Bunch of science names there. Let's uh, simplify that one. Please, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, okay, okay, absolutely. So, <laughs> pretty intense. Uh, so what symbiont or, you know, is, is basically an organism that lives happily kind of ever after with another organism, right? So symbi- symbiotic relationships, two organisms interacting, living, living with each other. So it's a beneficial interaction. In, 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 in this case, yeah, in this case it is, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And uh, ticks, as we all know, they're these little blood suckers organisms and they need blood to grow. They need blood to grow. They need blood to develop. They need blood to reproduce. Yeah. And uh, one of the things about ticks that's really annoying, other than, you know, the blood sucking part, is that uh, they carry a lot of diseases that can uh, transmit to humans, that they can transmit to humans and, you know, cause cause illness. We've talked about a few of those on here. We've talked about Lyme disease. We've talked about uh, uh, briefly, I think, about Babesia, anaplasma, yes. you know, rickettsial diseases, mm-hmm. all of all these tick tick related things, right? A lot that uh, we haven't talked about. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, maybe we should. And uh, just like every other living species, including you, right, uh, our listener, uh, ticks have a microbiome, and a microbiome is organisms that live on you, in you, and you know they help you. In most cases, they 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 are beneficial to you, right? They 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 help you uh, uh, perform yes. well. Uh, uh, microbiome in your intestine as a human help you with digestion, absorption of nutrients, et cetera, so on and so forth. And uh, these organisms produce a ton of, of uh, uh, molecules, metabolites that, and, you know, that help you perform your function. So the scientists in this particular study asked the question of whether any of these organisms inside these ticks can influence behavior not just necessarily physiology. Oh, oh, sure. Can it, can it help you say, get more vitamin K or whatever, or break that down? Oh, it's so, but, but can it help? Can it, can it affect function, behavioral function? So what they did in this case, they looked at this Asian longhorn tick and uh, it, it, one of the symbionts or microbiome that lives in this Asian tick is coxiella. 
And it turns out you can kill coxial with antibiotics. You can actually give 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 tetracycline, and you can you can pretty much kill the coxial. So they took these ticks, they gave them antibiotics, tetracycline, killed the coxiella bacteria that lives inside them, and as a result of killing that the bacteria that lives inside these ticks, you pretty much also kill everything that these bacteria produce, right? So if you get rid of it, you don't kill. So if you get rid of the bacteria, you no longer have these products. And then they monitor the behavior of these ticks. And it turns out that ticks stopped feeding. They stopped going for blood meals. So normally these ticks go for blood meals because they need it, right? So, but it turns out if you kill this one bacteria inside their microbiome, they, they, stop, they stop feeding. So to, to get to the bottom of this, they tried restoring or adding into the ticks some of the microbiome-derived products. So they, they, think, they thought, okay, if, if, if these things have coxiella and I kill the coxiella and they stop feeding, what is the coxiella producing that helps these ticks feed or affects their behavior to go feed? And it turns out these bacteria produce a compound called chorismate. The name doesn't matter, but they, they produce this compound that in then that in turn leads to the production of serotonin, which affects the behavior of the tick and its feeding abilities, which is crazy, right? So basically, you know, you can then have a link between a microbiome that is manipulating uh, its host behavior, right? Which, which to me is fascinating, which is, which is why I thought, you know, we'd bring it to the attention of our listeners. It, you're thinking, is, you're thinking. It is, it's, it, it's really interesting. But one, first thing, I was waiting for you to say the Latin name of the tick, but you skipped right I, I, Yeah, him of... He, Hemophysalis longicornis. That's a good try. I like it. That's good. Second, you know, it's really interesting. There's two two thoughts I actually have on this. One, you know, the, these ticks were lab-bred ticks, right? Right? They no. weren't wild ticks. As far as I know. Um, but, no, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, because it, uh, tetracycline antibiotics are usually the first-line agent for most tick-borne diseases. Yeah. Lyme disease, yeah. Rocky Mountain fever. So, so if there was some other bug there, it would be affected as well. Second, I would uh, argue that a very low percentage of these ticks carry coxiella, or at least not 100%. And so, well, it's really interesting that, uh, and, and I do believe that the, the tick microbiome will affect the tick, just like our microbiome will affect us they kind of made it sound like an all or nothing thing here right so oh if there's no 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 coxilla they're not going to feed but really it's just really a reduction in that because i guarantee you ticks that are in the wild that aren't infected with coxilla must still be feeding or else you wouldn't have any tick yeah. reproduction yeah so, so could, I, could, I think it's a it's a step in the right direction it's interesting stuff yeah 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 no but, I, I see what you're saying yeah i see what you're saying but could it possibly it, but it be can't, it can't be holistic it can't be no, 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 of course not. Of course not. With coxiella. No. Could it could it possibly I mean, I've be never... that, Go ahead. could it possibly be that there's another microbiome, another bacteria that also produces that same sure. intermediate that leads to 
tryptophan that leads to serotonin levels, right? So there might be redundancy. There, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, I, I, think that, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. I, I, well, kind of. I mean, I'm saying maybe maybe it's a degree and not a yes, no. I mean, in their case, the tips, the, the ticks stopped feeding. That's the, only 50% of the ticks that we get at Presque Isle have, have Borrelia. And that's the highest rate I've ever seen anywhere in the literature of a pathogen in ticks. Yeah. But this, this was micro, plus, right? this was the microbiome though. It wasn't like, Oh, it's infected. You know what I mean? Like it was, this- well, I understand, but, 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 Coxiella is a human disease. Yeah, yeah. Right? Coxiella Q fever. So it's a tick-borne disease, no doubt, right? And and therefore, since it's a human pathogen, we kind of monitor it a little bit. Yeah. But even but even I th- if it I is think, the microbiome, it can be transferred. It can be transmitted to yeah, humans. Yeah, yeah. I think I think for the Asian longhorn, I I, I don't know if it's uh, actually that's a good point. I don't know if for the Asian longhorn, if it's just a microbiome or also disease causing. But yeah, good point. But I thought it was cool that there's a it, microbiome cool. that affects behavior, not just physiology, right? Behavior. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I stole your word. Fascinating. Fasc- oh, yeah, fascinating, fascinating. All right, all right. Let's move on to Nobel Prize Science, Medicine, or Physiology Prize. Um, I, 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 th- I think we give this to Fawner. What do you think? There's a lot of physiology in here. Well, it's it's all fizz. You might as well just give it to them. Sure, why not? Um, so the 2021 Nobel Prize in Fizz or Medicine jointly awarded to David Julius and Ardem Pataputian, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, uh, I think they, it's Pataputian. Pataputian. Okay, I'm just going to so call him Ardem. So actually, you know, he's from my hometown. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. Ardem Padaputian, cool. born in Beirut, Lebanon. Padaputian. Grew up in Lebanon, actually. Wow. Wow. Yeah, That's and uh, you cool. know, moved moved move to the U.S. You know, in in, in college sure. aged years, and yeah, but sure, yeah, sure. If, from from my Just hometown. Like cool. Just like you. That's right. Yeah, but I well, <laughs> I don't have a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're still young. That's right. Um, so uh, they identified receptors that had to deal with sensations of temperature and mechanical stimuli, otherwise known as touch. Um, obviously, in order for us to survive, interact properly with the world around us, adapt to the world around us, we have to have some type of ability to detect and respond to mechanical sensations, mechanical deformities on our skin, as well as sensations of heat and cold. Uh, again, we kind and of a lot take of that these things stuff for granted. Sur- survival, true, right? Like you, you know, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah we you're gonna burn to a crisp or freeze, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. anytime I talk about pain or nociception via nociceptors, I which always are, which say, are which are simplify that down. Nociception and nociceptors. What does that detect? Well, that's what I said in the sentence. I thought I said detecting pain via nociceptors or nociception. Nociceptors are pain receptors in the my body. Bad, my Sorry bad. about that. So He's with getting sassy with me today. <laughs> I know. I was just about to text him saying, stop being sassy. So with <laughs> nociceptors, I, I always tell my students, hey, uh, it sucks to be in pain, but without pain and without the ability to detect pain, uh, we would we wouldn't survive very long. We would be dead very probably very quickly. Uh, what is isn't it? Um, 
with leprosy. What is, is, is that say infection, right? That uh-huh. yes. causes, dis- yes, it is. Dis- what is the uh, microorganism responsible for that? It's mycobacterium leprae. Okay. And I never, I've never forgotten watching this movie with my mom as a kid where I think it was back in, in the time of the crusades and this one kid uh, growing up a prince or related to royalty and the one king what had leprosy and the mom was always worried about the son having leprosy and she looks over and he is reaching over to grab something on a table and his arm is in a flame and he's not responding and she realizes oh he he's he's he has leprosy already so he's not detecting pain there and that's eventually what happens when you get the nasty you know what boils and lesions on the skin well it's uh, there's a lot of nerve damage due to exactly well leprosy is really intense i mean there's two two major outcomes and a lot of in-betweens but Mm -hmm. you know either way it's your immune response or it's the bacteria but it causes a lot of nerve damage so it goes right along with what Mm -hmm. dr fawner's saying that you have a loss of of sensation, anesthetic face uh, rashes on the uh, the skin is one of the major signs of of leprosy. So that, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, what you're gonna have to share that movie with me. That's interesting. But um, so the way these sensory receptors work, you know, things for mechanical uh, sensation, uh, mechanical sensory uh, perception, yeah. things like thermoreception for detection of hot or cold stimuli. Um, essentially it starts with a receptor, uh, receptor potential and by very kind of, by applying a stimulus to this sensory receptor, such as a thermoreceptor or a mechanoreceptor that detects mechanical stimuli, you're essentially changing the permeability of this sensory receptor or nerve to ions. And if it's a strong enough stimulus, so the mechanical stimulus is strong enough the temperature stimulus is strong enough, it's gonna fire off an action potential that goes along the nerve and eventually makes its way to our somatosensory cortex up in our brain, where we're then able to start parsing out, okay, are we detecting uh, temperature? Are we detecting mechanical stimulus? So on and so forth. So and it also comes down, go ahead. So just to, just to simplify all that, if, if I may. So you have, you have a, a stimulus, whether that's heat, mm-hmm. pressure, you know, whatever, right? That yep. acts on receptors, causes an electric impulse. Is that correct? Causes an electric impulse to move from one place to the next along the nerve cell to reach a center. Then, 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 you sometimes, know, yeah, sometimes it has to do with a receptor. Sometimes, you know, a simple mechanical bending of a sensory receptor uh-huh. that uh, such as a mechanoreceptor will cause a physical deformity that opens up uh, mechanically gated ion channels allowing the ions to flow right, right through but yes so some of them do electric, rely on receptors electric impulse or uh, there's some sort of electricity involved right or a exactly. measured measured electric yeah okay. so um what david julius and ardem did was they answered the question of how temperature and mechanical stimuli converted into these electrical signals and impulses in the nervous system. Um, again, some pretty cool stuff thinking about how exactly you start off with something mechanical or a physical stimulus, 
uh, think about what we're doing right now, electromagnetic radiation that we're detecting in our environment, our optic nerve and our photoreceptors in our eye, in our retina, are converting that into an electrical signal that is eventually passed back to give us the sensation of vision. Um, David Julius answered exactly how we respond to burning sensations. And if you think about it, we already know how somebody responds to, let's say, hot peppers. Uh, if somebody eats a very, very hot pepper, it can cause you to feel a burning sensation that if it's hot enough, obviously that could also cause some pain as well. And that's because some of these receptors, let's say on a thermoreceptor, they can also bind to different chemicals released by different substances and cause a painful sensation. That's how you can get kind of dual modality of these different uh, stimuli, both pain and temperature. But um, David Julius's science team uh, isolated DNA fragments that were associated with genes responsible for sensation. And they took cells that did not respond to these hot peppers and these cells did not have proteins or the genes that were required for that particular sensation. They then spent a lot of time adding these genes one by one to these cells and they examined and measured whether they responded to hot peppers. And after a period of time, they correctly added the gene responsible for the hot pepper sensitivity. And that's how they identified and discovered the protein that was needed for the response to heat. And this like receptor, crazy. I mean, they, the amount of work it takes, right? It's like oh, yeah. they had hundreds of genes and they just did not know which one responded to heat. And they just added them yep. one by one into cells and measured, oh, do, yep. they, do they respond to heat? No. Okay. Wrong gene. Do they respond to heat? Okay, no, wrong gene. And they did that till they found the right one. Yeah. And um, these types, so that gene that was, uh, that eventually encoded this very famous receptor is called TRPV1. And TRPV1 is a very famous and special thermoreceptor that is able to detect very hot or very heat uh, types of stimuli, as well as pain. And that's because it's able to also bind different chemicals. I believe TRPV1 is also able to sense um, pH, uh, pH differences or changes in the local environment. And it's all about the opening of those channels, those tiny little ion channels that are going to cause electrical impulses traveling along the nerves that eventually go up to the brain. So, so yeah, that's cool uh, David. There. What did uh, Ardem do? So he worked on mechanical or um, different types of receptors that respond to pressure changes. And there are a few different types of these receptors, uh, these sensory receptors, but they had cells that reacted to pressure. They would take these cells, isolate these cells, poke them with a small pipette, and they would then measure the electrical activity of these cells in response to that poking. Um, they employed pretty much an opposite approach as that of uh, Julius. And um, instead of adding genes for the receptors one by one, they would knock them out. So not addition, but knocking them out and actually taking them away one by one. And so they had these cells that they knew reacted to this kind of poking stimulus 
started knocking out the specific receptors and they would then measure the electrical activity each and every time. And eventually they came to that one receptor. And anytime we talk about knocking out, uh, you know, uh, a gene for these receptors, we're silencing it, right? We're under, we're eliciting gene silencing. Mm -hmm. And eventually they knocked out a receptor that made the cells lose their ability to respond to that mechanical poking, that specific deletion ended up not eliciting an electrical signal. And now they have finally identified the specific gene that encoded a mechanical sensory receptor. And that's cool. And that's very cool. And again, just kind of going through the thinking about the process of science and it's very laborious, takes a long time, but now we know which which receptors respond to an incredibly hot stimulus, which are responsible for mechanical deformation, et cetera. So why, you know, and I, you know, when I was in grad school, um, my PI sometimes, or I, I, I took this class one time and then this professor would say, why, why is this a nature paper? Why is this a science paper, right? Basically, why is it so important that it got published there? So why is this Nobel prize worthy? Why did this work get a Nobel prize? Well, if you know the type of receptor or the specific receptor that corresponds to these different stimuli that activate, you know, different sensations, you can then potentially develop treatments for it, you know, blocking agents, um, antagonists for these receptors. Um, some of these receptors could be implicated in chronic pain sure. where you have chemicals yep. that are coming in binding to these receptors. And like I said before, the you know the same receptor that can activate a hot sensation if the proper chemical binds to that trpv1 receptor it can cause a painful sensation as well so being able to identify that receptor producing the proper pharmaceutical agent that binds to it you don't want to necessarily knock something out forever you don't want to completely you know bind yeah. block and uh, destroy this receptor because you need it but with somebody suffering from chronic pain, maybe they're too sensitive, they're overly yeah. sensitive to Damn that painful. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, so there might be some pharmaceutical applications pretty much where, you know, like you can relieve chronic pain. You can, turns out with some of the heat receptors, uh, uh, the, the temperature receptors, they're involved in fever too. So you can possibly yep. in patients who have uh, a, a, a hyper inflammatory responses, you can possibly do something there. Um, but you know, now, as the, now the rub comes from the fact that you, there is redundancy when it comes to these receptors. So for example, yeah, uh, we years later, that, they discovered all these other receptors that can do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have other, you know, it's not just one, but it's gr a group of these receptors, uh, not only TRPV1 responding to heat and pain, but also another uh, receptor that was identified, TRPV2. Right. So it becomes right. more complex to develop yeah. the, yeah. you know, agents, but it's still something cool that definitely deserved the Nobel Prize. Yeah, and uh, certainly we agree. So, um for our listeners out there, uh, stay tuned. The next episode uh, we record, we'll talk about the chemistry prize. And the episode after that, we'll talk about the physics prize. Cool. 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 So uh, fun physio fact, sticking with our so physiology theme. Let's do this one uh, quickly if we can. 
Yeah. So everybody knows about um, acupuncture. I mean, I don't know about personally with you guys. I've never done it and I never will. Yeah, I've never had it. Yeah, I'm, I'll never do it. That doesn't seem like a good a good time you know, some, to me. Some of our uh, in, internal docs do. Some of the OPP faculty. Really? They, yeah. They, yeah, they, uh, they do practice acupuncture. And I mean, the concept is, appears to be sound and uh, anybody who has ever seen a movie or seen somebody or has undergone acupuncture involves the insertion of these very thin uh, needles through your skin at important and strategic points throughout the body. And it's generally used uh, for the practice of overall wellness. Uh, Some people use it to manage stress. Some people use it to manage some pain as well. In fact, a lot of um, practitioners here see acupuncture use as putting it in places where you stimulate things like nerves, uh, muscles, uh, different connective tissues. When you stimulate them in the right spot, you might be able to boost and enhance your body's natural painkillers. So it could be, and I'm not saying it'll completely alleviate your pain, but it might make for a good therapy in conjunction with um, other treatment modalities. So what uh, what's come out recently, I don't know exactly how long, but uh, it's a cool technique based on acupuncture called electroacupuncture. And this is when you actually use electricity to enhance the benefits of the traditional use of acupuncture. So, so with still- electro. It's still acupuncture. It's still these little needles, but they're, they have a, you small have a small electrode, electrode with a small amount of electricity yep. to run through them. Basically giving you a jump start. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <No>. Not working. <laughs> so I'm picturing like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right well, now. And here's, well, and here's the cool thing about it. I mean, if you, if you think about it too fast, you're going to say, okay, you're putting an electrode in me, you're turning on a switch and now you're, you're running electricity through me. Obviously the electricity is at a very low voltage. Um, Using the electrode and a proper voltage, you can ensure that you're getting the right amount of stimulation that I just talked about to different nerves, muscles, connective tissues. So what's the benefit? What's, 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 what's the benefit? Why, 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 why is this the thing? Uh, Well, it's going to activate specific nerve fibers inside of your body, uh, specifically fibers that, let's say, when you're stimulating nerves, uh, fibers part of the sympathetic nervous system. Um, For those of you who don't know sympathetics, that's when we talk about the fight or flight response. And anybody who has ever been in a fight or flight response knows that obviously you get that adrenaline. But after a period of time in the fight or flight response, they, for any runner out there, usually call this after a period of time, the runner's high. And that's when you're releasing kind of things like those endogenous opioid molecules called endorphins. You're saying there's joy in running? There is joy in running. I mean, (laughs) you're never going to get there. I haven't found it yet. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, with electroacupuncture, you can activate these sympathetic nerve fibers, increase your body's natural supply, elevate the endorphins, that can help to reduce inflammation and those activated nerve fibers may also be able to help to reduce and alleviate feelings of chronic and persistent pain, which oh, is why acupuncture and it seems like electroacupuncture might be a good treatment for anybody in persistent pain. 
or I know I've read about people who are chronically stressed who use this and hmm. it, it helps them to manage their stress. Maybe they're, uh, maybe they're hit, hitting those TRPV receptors and, uh, or T, uh, yeah, TRPV receptors and uh, shutting them down. They may also, electropuncture has been found, electroacupuncture has been found in previous studies to cause your body to release mesenchymal stem cells or MSCs. And if you release these MSCs, these are basically adult stem cells that are mostly localized in your bone marrow. And if you can stimulate the release of these MSCs into your bloodstream, they may have healing properties for different tissues. So uh, these, this electroacupuncture. Be careful there. Yeah, that might be a stretch. Uh, yeah. That might be a stretch. That's you're, big stretch. You're getting into a gray area, but they're still big investigating. They're know. investigating the degree of tissue repair with electroacupuncture. Yeah, because All I know e is e even, even if these get released, they still need the right environmental cues. And the right yep. cytokines, the right signals. To then differentiate into yeah. cer certain types Different of tissues. But All I know is tissues, if, I was, yeah. if I was doing this, I'd probably turn the dial up to 10 just to see what would happen. <laughs> <laughs> Try it now. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, yeah. No, for sure. For sure. Thank you, Dr. Fauner. Absolutely. We put you uh, to work. Shocking. To work this episode. We'll give you we'll give you a break it's next okay. time. I taught fizz all week. I'm all good to go. You're all fizzed up. Yep. So Electrifying. Um, we are to our last segment, which is the game segment. Uh, we will keep the, it short, I promise. But I shout out to uh, a lot of you uh, responding yes. on Instagram, and we appreciate you for that. But, you know, we do well, have a request of sharing, subscribing, and um, getting us a bigger audience. But let's uh, take it away. Well, without your input, it's not a fun segment, to be honest. That is correct. Really, that's true. So the uh, for a very quick recap of last episode's question, we had a four-year-old boy who had a deep puncture wound uh, after he sliced open his left foot on a pile of scrap metal. Uh, his parents cleaned the wound, used super glue to seal it because they were out of Band-Aids. And this is actually based on a true story. Two weeks after, uh, after the sealing of the wound, the boy complained that his jaw hurt. They scheduled a dentist appointment the next day, and uh, he had severe pain uh, in his neck and jaw. It's, uh, this was definitely locked jaw. Um, Patients typically present to the dentist actually for jaw pain. That's one of the first symptoms of, of clinical clinical symptoms of tetanus. Uh, so this week, last week's question was what infection did he get? And uh, what part of the organism is most important for transmission? And we had a lot of good entries, including Rick and, and Jen. Thank you. Glad to see you're doing well down there at Seton Hill. Uh, and I think this week our winner is Vanessa, right? Is, is that yeah, that we, is Vanessa yeah. Robolino? Please email Robolino. the show or yes. send us a DM on Instagram with your or not not necessarily your, but any address you would like your gift sent to. Bling, absolutely. Show bling. A quick shout so, out to all to those who wrote, by the way, Jen. Absolutely. Uh, Kevin Kelly, Kevin the Kelly, Zebros. Rick, uh, the Zebros take on the world on Instagram. <laughs> wrote us in with the <laughs> correct it, answer it. as well. 
I, I love that name too. So just, uh, just to finish this up, the, uh, I, I think most of us got tetanus out of this. Absolutely. Um, but what's really important for transmission is the spore. So uh, the clostridia, like botulism, like tetanus, and like um, uh, C. diff, which is a big hospital infection. Now, the spore is essential as part of the, uh, part of the transmission. So the bacteria doesn't really survive out in the dirt. It's the spore. And so when, when you step on a rusty nail, my mom always told me not to do that. Good advice. Either way, you get a deep puncture wound and that spore gets into the tissue where there's not a lot of oxygen and then it starts to grow there. And so the spore is what's really being transmitted and it's, it's really important for these infections. Interestingly enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, quick, uh, quick mention here. Jen asked uh, if we would, uh, talk about aquagenic uh, urticaria, which thank you for that suggestion. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely do a small segment on that in an upcoming episode for sure. And uh, also I, I, I want to read it because it's a, it's a good uh, fuzzy uh, feel good feeling. Uh, she says, I uh, hope we're doing well. She's on the immuno block uh, currently in med school. And she's been looking back on those presentations we gave her in class uh, all three of us have had her in class and she's highly considering this specialty and she says she definitely owes it to you all so thanks for that we're, we're glad to know that our collective effort all three of us have had you in class uh, has made an impact on you so thanks thanks for acknowledging that and running in yeah thank you Jen. Jen. thank you absolutely all, all right. right so this, this week's episode, let's do it. I kept it short. Everybody, please write in. A little Googling will go a long way here. So we have a 45-year-old male who has poorly controlled HIV. And he develops a lung infection, specifically pneumonia. He routinely smokes marijuana and cigarettes, but denies or he has occasional beer. Uh, and it's discovered that the marijuana that he smokes is contaminated with a fungus. This is a very true scenario. So the question for this episode is what mold is most likely contaminating the marijuana? Interesting. That's it. Yeah. Would, mm -hmm. would, would you allow some clarifying questions? Uh, Maybe. Perhaps. What, how much more clarifying? So let's, so let's see. Okay. So 45-year-old male, poorly controlled HIV, so not taking his antiretroviral meds i take it or maybe refractory meaning okay. they aren't working okay. they're not working and he has pneumonia and mm -hmm. we're saying that the pneumonia is caused by a fungus yes we are okay and he got this fungus from smoking marijuana hey father you're not a microbiologist was that pretty self-explanatory i think it's fine okay well, because, but, you know, there are pneumonias caused, caused by bacteria. I just want to, you know, kind of help our listeners in a direction, you know. Okay. I like it. I like it. Yeah, me too. You're welcome. This is so good news. You know, it's funny that this is the case because we had, uh, we, oh. we, we had an HIV patient in, in class today who had pneumonia. <laughs> and, I bet it was uh, a different bug. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, which is okay. No, this is interesting. Cool. 
Well, I'm not going to say that. what it is yet. Well, we can talk. Why don't we bring that up at the next episode? Let's yeah, do that. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds good. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening, folks. That's our show for today. Please subscribe, share, uh, get on Instagram, tell your friends. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. And uh, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music. And you can find our videos on Daily Motion. You can find the links to all of these in the show notes. Follow and share. And thanks for listening and catch you next time. Keep those emails coming. Keep those topic suggestions Please. coming. We Please. will definitely talk about that next time. And uh, thanks for listening and goodbye. And we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.